You're listening to On Mission with Dr. Matt Davis, a podcast designed to explore the personal mission of everyday leaders. Hear from men and women who are making a difference in their corner of the world and discover what keeps them on mission. Welcome to On Mission with Dr. Matt Davis. I'm Jonathan Sheely. In today's episode, we are joined by Daniel Sir, the managing attorney at the Liberty Justice Center. Sir is a good friend, and he has been a good friend. And what I mean by that is, you know, friendship, sometimes we think about friendships as the people we like and we hang around with and almost Mm -hmm. like an emotional thing. And there's certainly an element of that. But what I appreciate so much about Daniel is the fact that he has been a good friend intentionally, especially to young people. And he has intentionally reached out and created and sought relationships with people who you might say socially are quite a ways below him in the strata. I mean, he is a big deal. He's the managing attorney for a national First Amendment defense firm. That is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And yet he takes the time to come over here and do a general assembly for our students. He takes the time to get to know young men and women who are headed to law school or thinking about that and to mentor them and give them extensive advice and his time and help and to follow up and just do the courteous things that are so missing right now in our social dialogue. There's so much to be to be uh, lauded there for someone who has great reasons to not talk to young people because of how important his time and, and, and energy is spent on the things that he's doing. Yeah. But it's just his conversation. You can just you can just feel his mentorship fiber exuding through our conversation. Oh, yeah. And I had a great time talking to him, kind of reliving some of the glory days of my own time in religious liberty defense on that side of things. And he's doing a very similar work. And a lot of their cases are very important cases for Christians to understand. Our our religious liberty in this country right now is actually what they call hybrid rights. And it is a combination of First Amendment uh, two different First Amendment rights. And so we have free speech, but we also have the free exercise. And so that's a very important thing to understand and the dynamic to continue to exercise uh, those rights, or we will and can lose them. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation, so let's get to it. Daniel and his wife Anna live in Cedarburg, Wisconsin with their two boys. His first full-time job was as Deputy Director of Student Outreach for the Federalist Society in Washington, D.C., Daniel's favorite meal is anything with hummus, feta, some olives, cucumbers, and chicken or lamb. While he doesn't have time for many hobbies as he plays an active role in his son's activities, he takes time for reading and is on pace to finish more than 40 books this year. His favorite sport team is a good nonfiction book and a blanket. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you for coming on. It is fun uh, to get to know folks, and I appreciate so much your life and your testimony. We have a, a lot in common as attorneys and especially as lawyers who are sort of dedicated to advancing a cause or defending, and in particular, the religious liberties that we have. And they're so important to to exercise those rights. They're like muscles. If we don't exercise them, we lose them, right? But you said that uh, you have been uh, mostly engaged and absorbed with your sons and having the uh, opportunity to, to to play the role of dad. And there's probably nothing that more fundamentally changes a guy <laughs> than, yeah, right. than to have, have children. So you were uh, speaking in our assembly this morning on campus, and I appreciate that so much. Your topic had to do with the superheroes, and you sort of uh, led off with Legos. And 
I don't know if there's a more expensive product in <laughs> the world oh, man. Uh, than, than Legos. Did you know that four minifigure, the little four minifigure pack that you can get is now $25? <laughs> I can't even imagine. So you, you, you have uh, probably invested a fortune in Legos. Yeah, especially at Christmas time. This is a very <laughs> real um, concern. So last year for Father's Day... Um, my kids uh, got me a AT-AT, like one of the big oh, yeah. Star Wars AT-AT oh, yeah. sets, which easily probably was 80, 90 bucks. Um, and like I assembled it and I put it in my office and then they wanted to play with it with all their other Star Wars sets. Mm. I was like, no, no, this is my Star Wars <laughs> Lego set. It is in my office yeah. and it will sit there and, you know, it's out of the box, but it is nonetheless... My set. You don't get to have anything that's yours anymore. <laughs> You're a dad. What's yours is theirs. <laughs> so do you guys have like the 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 catch all box or are you guys the uh, the separators? Uh, so my sainted wife tried once to have separated boxes and probably spent an entire rainy Saturday. And yes, learn the hard way. Everybody here is nodding in studio that you can do it once, but then no. retaining the separateness oh, man. Yeah. is impossible. Yeah. Yeah. It, Lego is really actually a, a fascinating company and their their manufacturing processes are incredible. And you look at all these little tiny pieces and, you know, maybe you have three or four sets that have become commingled and now, you know, inextricably lost. But uh, their their quality control is outstanding. When, did you ever open a pack and then you became convinced that you were missing a piece? And there's a number you can call. We called this number one time because they had this really, it was Technic. Oh, man. If you get into Lego Technics when they get older, well, God help you. But this <laughs> one little tiny piece that we couldn't find and we didn't have. And so I called Lego and they, they did send it to us for free. But they, they do it by weight. And it's down to the microgram. They know exactly. That box doesn't leave the factory unless it weighs exactly what it's supposed to weigh. And that would be every single correct piece is in the box. Imagine, I mean, one little piece of Lego doesn't weigh very much. <laughs> so my realization the other day, um, this is, I guess, during COVID, uh, right, we're all stuck at home. We got nothing to do. And one of my uh, similarly adult age friends had a bunch of his Lego sets from his childhood all in Ziplocs. And so he, you know, leaves on our front doorstep all of his wow. childhood sets, including the directions. Back in the day, the directions were so much less precise. Yeah. Like the directions today in a Lego booklet, it is every single piece, every yeah. single step. Yeah. Back in the day, it was like five pages of, okay, it looks like this, and now it looks like this, mm -hmm. and now it looks like this. And you had to figure out oh, yeah. where... Like what changed between the pictures? It's well, they saved on translators. <laughs> <laughs> it was just pictures, and uh, and that's how that all works. So I mean, the other thing that's amazing to me about Lego is you know when we were kids, there was like th these very basic um, like cowboys and Indians or pirates as the sets. Right. Today there are these whole narrative universes of yeah. like Lego Ninjago, yeah. or you know, not even the brands that they bought, like the Disney brands, but just ones they develop internally with the comic books, the TV shows, the mm. movies, the books. Like, it's a whole package, and they just make so much more money that way. Oh, it's, sure. Yeah. It, it, to be cynical about it, they're just creating more product lines yes. yeah, with the same product. All right. So we really appreciated your assembly time this morning. Uh, just phenomenal content at the right level. Uh, but here in the show, we want to talk a little bit more about you, and we want to know how you've gotten where you are, 
Um, and one of the greatest questions you can ask to find that out is, do you have a personal mission statement? Yeah. So my goal in life is someday to make all of my friends federal judges. Um, <laughs> there you go. And uh, everything that I do between now and then is just trying to be ready to be in the place where someday all my friends can be federal judges. Have you ever met Mike Davis with the Article 3 project? Yes. Mm -hmm. so this is what he does. Yeah. yeah. He, he's the same way. Yes. And he worked with Chuck Grassley? Who was it? Yes. It was a Grassley well, on the, the Judiciary Committee. Mm -hmm. And they accomplished some amazing, I mean, amazing volume of placements in filling vacancies. And then the, the opposition turned around and said, you're, you're packing the courts. And I said, wait a minute. No, replacing vacancies <laughs> is a big difference than yeah. packing the court, yeah. right? Uh, but no, that is a, um, that, that's so, good. So, so what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. So Jonathan mentioned, I, my first job out of law school was at a place called the Federal Society. Right. It's sort of a nationwide network for conservative and libertarian uh, lawyers and law students. And I had, I mean, I had a great job. It's much like your job here at the university, right? Like I got paid to hang out with conservative law students yeah. and encourage them in their careers. Um, and so over that period of time, I just got to know so many of the very best lawyers in, in my generation who share my principles. And I just kind of found at that moment, like they, and they became my friends and some of them became my, you know, my roommate in DC, or they're still all on my Christmas card list. And hopefully when we're in our forties and fifties, I'll be in a position to help make them all federal judges. And they are accomplishing incredible things. One of those young men that you helped is a Maranatha graduate named David Wendholt. And David was a fantastic student here. And uh, not only was he a good student academically, but he was involved in everything. And one of the things at Maranatha that really kind of is, is a, a focus and a distinctive for us is that you need to be a well-rounded person. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to relate. You need to be uh, empathetic and nothing helps to be empathetic than to be involved in lots of different things. He was incredible as a basketball player. And I've, I've still got slow motion videos on my yeah, phone yeah. of, of David hitting a key three pointer in a ball game to turn the tide and go Sabercats. Let's go. <laughs> and so, uh, I appreciate so much the interest that you have put even into my own son and his, some of his, uh, uh, classmates that are interested in pursuing a legal career and a profession and as you said, that's a shared passion because we are forward-looking. We're future-oriented and optimistic about what God can do in using someone who's dedicated to doing what's right. Yeah, so the law is uh, taught as a three-year course of study in law school, but in so many ways, it's an apprenticeship hmm. profession, right? It used to be actually a uh, an apprenticeship profession, right. uh, but so much of the law is just being around other slightly older lawyers and... Um, I've certainly had that in my own life, and it's a real joy then to be able to have other younger lawyers come along or, or law students. So in David's case, I, I literally just opened up my email inbox one day, and I have this LinkedIn message from this kid I've never met before saying, I'm going to be in Madison with Mike Dean yep. uh, at a Federal Society lunch, uh, and Mike said, you're a nice guy. Would you be willing to meet me for coffee? <laughs> um, and if you know Mike Dean, like you're like, oh, okay, obviously it's supposed to be a great kid because Mike's a good guy. And so David came over to the lieutenant governor's office in the state capitol, and we just sat down for half hour, 45 minutes. You know, and at the time, David's probably 10 years younger than me. And so like there was a big gap, like you could feel that gap. Now we're both in our careers. He's got a house, he's got kid, yeah. you know, another one on the way. Like we're just at a much different point where 
we stopped being like a mentor and a mentee thing. And now he's just one of my best friends. Wow. Uh, we just hang out. We go on hikes. We He's really big into fly fishing is his new thing now. Um, <laughs> fly so, fishing. Yeah. Uh, it's time for I'm fly waiting fishing. to get a waiter, a set of waiters for Christmas because I think David just needs a fly fishing buddy. So. Okay. Good luck with that. I know this that. is coming. <laughs> good luck. But he became a clerk for a federal judge and then another federal judge. And he's uh, now into private practice again. And and that's sort of the path that, that God has put out for him. But it takes sort of those conversations and relationships, the mentoring relationships that kind of even unfold the possibilities. So many times in college, the world is ahead of us, but that's a bit of a paralyzing problem to have all that opportunity. What, what should I pursue? You know, and, and so in your career, did you always want to be a lawyer or what was the reason why you pursued that in the first place? Yeah. So my parents took me to a bush quail rally on Labor Day, 1992. Nice. So uh, President Bush came to uh, Waukesha on Labor Day. And my parents, like, are just generally Republicans, but they weren't particularly political people. Okay. Um, but, like, the president's coming to our community, right? So we're going to go. Uh, and so we went to Labor Day. And then, like, a month later, uh, he started his whistle stop uh, train tour of Wisconsin, like, the week before the election in Burlington, which is an even smaller town where we're from, uh, mm-hmm. where I grew up. And, like, I have just always known since I went to those two events that, like, I was going to have a career in politics. Uh, and like just had a very clear sense of, of mission. Like this was yeah. going to be what I did. And eventually a few years in, uh, my mom said, well, Daniel, like in every election, there's a winner and a loser. Like, what are you going to do for a job if you lose? Yeah. Uh, and I was like, I guess I'll be a lawyer. <laughs> um, and then if we win, I'll write prize. the law. And if we lose, I'll like, I'll be a lawyer. Okay. Um, and that's actually exactly what happened later on. Like I was working for Governor Walker and um, doing a great job working in politics. And then Governor Walker didn't win re-election in 2018. And I'm like, what am I going to do next? Yeah. And uh, I thought about being a lobbyist. But honestly, like I was always the guy in the governor's office who told the lobbyists no yeah. because I was the sort of – principled conservative like that was my job on the staff was to be the ideological guy and then we had other people who were the backslapping schmoozer guys like needless to say none that. of the lobbyists were going to hire me then after yeah. i was like the guy was like no no tax credits for you you were doing a different yeah. kind of slapping was, right exactly so <laughs> face slap um <laughs> some days get away you know julaine appling was like i was joking earlier julaine and i were the you know she was on the outside and i was on the inside but yeah. we were the ones who were like the the hardcore conservatives. Mm. Um, and so it became clear, wasn't going to get a job in lobbying. And um, through a, a friend from college, on a, literally seeing something on a job board, uh, applied to Liberty Justice Center. And in you know three years, went from being an associate to being the managing attorney. So tell me about the center and a little bit of its history and kind of the scope of the, the cases that you guys work on. Yeah. So um, in pretty much every state, uh, there is a state-based free market organization, um, and, and we're part of a nationwide trade association called uh, the State Policy Network. Hmm. And so in Wisconsin, you think of like WILL, the Wisconsin Institute yeah. for Law and Liberty. Um, so initially, Liberty Justice Center was uh, the law firm in Illinois uh, that did pro-freedom cases. Right. Uh, one of those pro-freedom cases uh, was representing an Illinois state employee named Mark Janus, uh, who was being forced to pay union fees uh, to his union 
against his will. And the case ended up going all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, and in a historic decision, uh, we won uh, freedom for literally tens of millions of public employees across the country to no longer have to pay mandatory uh, union fees. And that was a moment for our organization where our board of directors said, you know what, we should go back to the Supreme Court and we should fight these these cases on behalf of um, free speech for workers, not just in Illinois, but nationwide. Like Easier just... said than done. Though. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it takes a while to get to the Supreme Court. It does. And they don't it, take every case. They don't. Um, we're, we're trying. Uh, we're hoping to go back next year. Um, so our organization initially started growing and doing a lot more cases trying to build on Janus, trying to represent union workers. Uh, and the more and more we got into it, the more we realized like free speech and free association, the principles behind the Janus case, like they're under attack everywhere. Not right? just like, in cancel, union cases. Not just in union and, yeah. cases, but you know, cancel culture, campaign finance, um, public employment. There are so many different circumstances where free speech is, is threatened. Right. Um, and so we've really grown to be just a general... Uh, free speech firm. We do some other types of constitutional cases as well. Uh, I've gotten into school choice. Do you do any religious liberty practice? So we're not a life, marriage, and religious liberty firm necessarily. Right. Uh, there are great people like Alliance Defending yeah. Freedom who do that. Uh, but one of the cool things about sort of the conservative legal movement overall right. is that we often come to the same case for different reasons. Yeah. In fact, the Supreme Court has actually memorialized some of that with the hybrid rights. Yeah. Where they talk about the First totally. Amendment's rights of freedom of speech, freedom of conscience overlap quite yes. a bit. So I'll give you a great example. So um, Alliance Defending Freedom had a great case on behalf of Coach Joe Kennedy, yeah. who was this praying uh, high school football coach who wanted to pray at the end of a football game. So we're, we're not a, a religious liberty firm necessarily, but we still filed an amicus brief in that case because we're concerned about the ways in which public employees overall are being told, you don't have free, free speech rights at work. So it might be that Coach Joe wanted to use his free speech to pray. I represent people who want to use their free speech to comment on politics. And because they work in public employment settings, they have been fired from their job for speaking off their job site for being on Facebook, saying something the government doesn't like. All right. So I want to ask you about that particular case. Because um, I've been asked this question. Yeah. It's been settled a long time ago that we can't have prayer in public schools. So why should this football coach, why should his right to pray be any different than the well-settled principle of separation of church and state, which says that we can't have prayer in schools. I mean, what, what was the difference in that case? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the difference is an individual um, choosing to exercise his personal faith versus the government uh, mandating that students participate in a corporate exercise, right? So if you're at the beginning of the school day and the teacher says, um, we're going to pray now, like that's something that sort of draws students in. And and even if the student has an option to opt out, right, even if the student can stay seated or doesn't want to bow their head, um, that it's something that students feel coerced into doing. Whereas for Coach Kennedy, um, you know, he just wanted to go out after the game on his personal time while everybody else is hitting the showers and, and pray on the field. Um, and in fact, a lot of the difficulty in the case was he's wearing his school polo shirt, right? And his his players are watching him. And so are his players going to feel pressured to right. share his faith or or um, copy his faith or also pray after the game? 
And the court was like, no, we still need to respect his right to do his thing. And teachers are going to be role models. That's just inherent in who they are. But that doesn't mean they lose their their individual rights. I did see, though, in that case, the, the fact that it turned out to protect his rights and actually surprisingly strongly, which goes to the strength of this particular makeup of the Supreme Court uh, and their approach, which I think is markedly different than what I was seeing even just 15 years ago. In fact, it was uh, Santa Fe... Mm-hmm. The Santa Fe case was another football prayer case, yes. and the Supreme Court didn't decide it that way. And that was student-led, student-initiated prayer. That's right. And I I do see that even though this verdict or this result makes perfect sense, and I'm glad for it, it is a shift, and I think it signals the right kind of shift back towards protecting and balancing those different interests. Because when a teacher in the public school stands up, or even a football coach, it's not just about them individually. They are the government at that point. And so the principles of, of separation are put into some tension with that. And we have to be able to balance when does an individual check his rights versus when is he acting on behalf of the government in a coercive way uh, that would be impermissible. So this is a real challenge, uh, not only when uh, teachers choose to exercise their faith, but also when teachers talk about their politics, right? So the court says in Kennedy, like as as by way of example, you know, if a teacher wants to keep a Bible on their desk because yeah. they read the Bible at the start of the day, that's fine. Well, there are plenty of teachers who also keep a Black Lives Matter poster or yeah. a rainbow flag yep. on their desk. And that's exactly what I was getting at too, because we have to be careful when we say, well, but I want my guy to be able to do this, but you have to understand the barn door swings both directions. Yes, And that's what we're seeing, I think, more so these days is the ideological. And I mean, it's it's held with the force of religion, you know, in in those that, that are preaching that kind of faith. I mean, we could use religious terms, uh, and yet there's a whole lot of indoctrination going on in the government school systems. And I'm sure you guys are seeing that as well. So for starters, it's one of the reasons we can be thankful for places like Maranatha Academy, right? Yeah, that that right. families have an option. For high school, yeah. Uh, and for uh, one of the topics, you know, you mentioned in your introduction, school choice, right? Yep. That we can give families right. a choice uh, to use uh, a voucher to be able to go to a place like Maranatha. But it is absolutely the case. So um, several of the cases I litigate are public schools where um, this woke ideology is being forced on students. So I'll give you an example. Uh, I represent a group of, of students in Loudoun County, Virginia, which is the wealthiest county in America per capita. And uh, their school has adopted a bias incident code. And so if any student K through 12 uh, engages in a biased incident, which is speech that makes another student feel uncomfortable, the student who receives that biased speech can anonymously report it, and the student will be investigated and disciplined. Anonymously reported. Anonymously reported. Now, obviously, the important question then is, well, what counts as biased speech? I was uncomfortable through most of ju- all of junior high and most, <laughs> and most of, high, of school. high school. Right? <laughs> like, so, where was this when I was in school? So many universities have... Um, these similar bias codes, and there's, and I'll just give a typical example. You wear a red "Make America Great Again" hat, right? If you are a student who is a dreamer, a a undocumented immigrant who's also at that university, and you see that red hat, maybe it does make you uncomfortable. Maybe it brings up thoughts about the border and whether or not I'm welcome in this country and all that. Yeah. 
But that doesn't mean the student who's wearing the hat doesn't have a First Amendment right to wear the hat, mm. right? Like, if we're going to be adults in society, we're going to encounter things that make us uncomfortable. Well, you said there are some, that's assuming Ooh. facts, not in evidence. You said <laughs> if we're going to be adults, okay? Um, Supreme Court. So one of the cases that's at the Supreme Court right now, uh, actually being argued this week, is called 303 Creative. And it's a wedding right. website designer who refuses to design a, a website for same-sex marriages. So um, I had a, a column for World Magazine pointing out the irony, and actually I think we did an amicus brief pointing out the irony, that traditionally the right to artistic expression has always been championed by the liberals on the court. Right. And so we go find the um, cases about about dancing. Yeah. Uh, There's about, nasty yes. stuff that's been defended. Obscenity, Obscenity. and all of those kinds yes. of cases. Yeah, because and, and they were defended on First Amendment grounds. You have the right to be nasty, offensive, and say the most horrible things and none of us would repeat because the First Amendment protects it. Yes. So I think my exact line in the amicus brief was something like, if the First Amendment protects new dancing at the Kitty Clack Club, you're telling me it doesn't protect this person's right in how they make their artistic websites around the nature of marriage, wow. right? Like it's it's it, the barn door swings both ways. Mm. If we're going to say that there's going to be this broad First Amendment right for artistic expression, it's got to cover the Christian wedding website designer just as much as it covers the obscenity, the pornography, the hustlers of the world. Isn't there an even easier distinction that can be make made for the wedding cake, the artist, the photographer? the designer, to say that this is not discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, even if you accept that that's the law, that this is not on the basis of the identity of the individual customer. This is a messaging issue. And I'll make any, you know, Jack the baker would say, I'll make any cake for anyone, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to decorate right. a cake for this event. It's this, it's what the messaging is. I actually had a similar case to this uh, down in Florida when I was an attorney for the Christian Law Association, where we had a, a printing press, a local printing press, and somebody brought in flyers for a Wiccan get-together. And it was at midnight on Halloween out in the woods, and they were going to, I don't know, sacrifice a chicken or something. But uh, it, I mean, it you could say it was harmless. I don't, I don't particularly think that worshiping the devil is harmless, but it's a bunch of weirdos out in the woods doing some weird stuff. But this printer said, I don't want to print that. I'm not going to print that. And they filed a grievance at that time with the St. Petersburg City Council Civil Rights Division or yeah, whatever. Sure. And they wanted to come after this printer and say, you're not a religious organization. You don't get to discriminate against people on the basis of their religion. And I look at it as, no, this is the message. It's not the identity of the individual. Is that part of the case or part of the argument that you're making? Yeah, that's so important. And you're right. It is part. This is not about uh, the person. It's about the message. Uh, but the other thing that you mentioned, I think, uh, is important too, which is that just because you're living out your faith through working in a business setting doesn't mean you give up the right to live out your faith. Right. And the and the good news is the Supreme Court in the Hobby Lobby case a few yeah. years ago yeah. really vindicated that right. And so, you know, for instance, right now we had that question at the assembly about the Respect for Marriage Act. Yeah. And we're having a lot of fights about what rights should religious organizations have. But there are a lot of people who are religious who don't work at a church, who don't work at a church affiliated this is university. The most, catch this, because this is the most vulnerable legal segment right now is secular work. Christian workers. Yes. 
And it's not necessarily the religious organizations that are under fire. It is the secular workplace, the Christian business owner who's trying to operate his business based on biblical principles. And there's very much a conflict over this right now. And I wouldn't say it's completely decided, certainly not by Hobby Lobby, because after that case, there was still the argument of, well, that's a closely held family type corporation. It's not a broad, it's not Walmart. It's not, you know, and I I don't know how that would be viewed in a broader context. So obviously we spend most of our time suing the government, but if we want to look at where so much of our culture is being shaped right now and and moving, it's corporations. And so for your students who are called to business, like just because you're in a business making money doesn't mean you can't make a huge impact for the kingdom. Yeah. Like we need people in C-suites. We need people at Fortune 500 companies who hold to our principles. And it can just be as simple as saying, let's not engage in the culture war, right? I'm not even necessarily asking you to come in there and be a warrior for these principles. I'm just saying, let's, let's not engage in the first place. So you look at Disney, yeah. right? The fact that they're transitioning CEOs and in Bob Iger's first interview as the new CEO, he says, "We're we're we're just we're just going to try to pull our feet out of the fire here. Like we just want to make entertainment for families. We don't want to be in well, this specifically." Place. He said, "You know, we've gotten dragged into some culture wars here." And I'm like, "You weren't dragged into anything. You all jumped into that pool, both feet. You know, you yeah. cannonballed into that." Pool. And they brought back the guy who started them down this road in the, in first, the first place. place. So he's yeah. not. I mean, I used to say, "Your your best thinking got you in this hole. It's not going to get you out." And uh, here they brought him back in. So you said your mission is about judges, and that that's, I think you're saying that sort of really, but metaphorically as well, that you're building uh, strong, independent, and, and autonomous uh, warriors, you know, yeah, people who can right. independently think and analyze and, and critically evaluate culture and whatever vocation it is. Uh, that they become that kind of individual. And that's certainly so compatible with Maranatha. Our mission is to develop leaders for the local church and the world to the praise of his glory, those that would honor God with their choices. But using that judicial framework, what is the kind of judge that you're trying to see you know, enshrined in office? These federal judge appointments are lifetime appointments, and certainly people have debated whether that should be the case. But what would your view of a, a good, a righteous judge look like? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, obviously, righteous is a, is a biblical um, standard and starter, but it's, it's from, yeah. uh, you know. I uh, mean it in a, the, the more secular sense, though, yeah, too. Well, yeah, well, I, I actually, I'll take it in the biblical sense. Yeah. I think the bottom line is always starting with people of integrity, um, that before we ever worry about ideology, um, having judges who are, are, just good people who are people of integrity is so important because it's so easy once you're in that lifetime role to have the ego just balloon, right? Yeah. And you get great dinner reservations when you call on behalf of judge so-and-so, right? Like all <laughs> the lawyers in town just worship the ground you walk on because you have power over their cases. And so just having people who are humble and live with integrity and and have faith, like that's that's just the baseline starting point. I think the second point is is intellect. Mm-hmm. Um, that when we need judges who are smart, who take the law seriously, who read deeply, who understand history and the first principles of our country. And then ideology really only comes third. It's only after you have people of integrity and intellect that you worry about people who are aligned with right jurisprudential approaches. Um, and I think 
honestly, if you have people who are people of integrity and and intellectual, think seriously, it will often lead to also being people who approach the law in the right way, which I would define as being uh, people who, uh, judges who apply the law rather than make the law. Um, but that's what it is to be a person of faith in the fight. Like if you're going to be uh, someone who holds true to your convictions in a culture that's hostile, and I, I wish that wasn't the culture we were in, but I fear that it is, um, you know, you got to look to people like Daniel and Joseph to know that uh, it just takes courage and confidence that in the end, uh, the Lord wins, even yeah. if we can't see that far down the horizon well, right away. People of faith are in it for the long term. And they're looking not just beyond their lifetime, but beyond this current age and looking towards. And honestly, that's a, that's one of the major differences between conservative and liberal philosophies in general, that we all share the goal of a utopia where all of the inequalities of life will be righted and that we can enjoy perfect harmony and peace and unity and that the, the, the curse of sin is removed. But a believer looks at that and says, as long as the curse of sin has not been removed, right. we need to have checks and balances. We need to have systems that encourage right behavior and right choices and that punish wrong behavior and wrong choices, and that that is the appropriate role of human government in this age. But that we, we do look forward to a time when that will not be necessary. We just understand that realistically that's not going to happen while the curse is still here. That's right. We live in a, frol a fallen, broken world. We're fallen, broken people. Uh, you know, government is a gift that God gives us to help ameliorate the darkness of the age that we're in. Mm. Um, but part of the genius of the founders yeah. was recognizing that the people who serve in government are just as broken as the people who aren't in government. And and if they weren't on the way in, they will be broken <laughs> by the way. Right. Power corrupts. <laughs> yes. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And so checks and balances, the separation of powers, uh, federalism, these, these concepts aren't just uh, political philosophy. They represent a deeper insight into human nature, yeah. which is if we're going to entrust power to broken people, let's divide the power out yep. and let's put in place these checks and balances. And then on judges, like this is why it's so important that we have judges who hold to the law. Yeah. Because judges are just as broken as the rest of us. And if they start doing what they think is right, oftentimes they're going to be wrong. Yeah. But we, we just have to trust that the, the laws that come out of the system, because that system is reflective of what we know about human nature, they're going to be the best, the best answer in a broken world. You mentioned Joseph and Daniel. I wonder just from a cultural standpoint, there are those that say that Christian people really shouldn't get involved in government, that they should separate politics and faith, and that if you're that dogmatic about something, that you you really shouldn't be involved in the government, almost like a secular fundamentalism. Keep that stuff at home. Uh, what, what would you say to somebody in that? Yeah, so that was me growing up, right? Like I had so many times where the little old ladies at church who were always well-meaning would say, like, what's a nice kid like you doing going into politics? Like it's just going to ruin you and it's going to be terrible. And my answer is always the same. If good people don't engage in, engage in politics, then we leave all the power to the bad people. Yeah, who's left? <laughs> right? And it's true. There are plenty of people who are anxious to exercise power in our society. And they are, they are ready and willing to serve in government. And they are either motivated by a ideology that is wrong or by a selfish, ambitious profit motive, essentially. Just a little different view. 
And so it is only when good, godly people take the step of faith, feel called, answer that call, even knowing that it's going to be hard, because otherwise when we cede the battlefield to the other side, you know, we give up a ton of cultural influence and power. And then we end up with what we've got, not just in government, but in corporations, in all these academia, Mm -hmm. right? Like we need faithful people witnessing. uh, We need to be salt and light. We need to be salt and light. You mentioned academia. There have been studies that look at the current composition politically of higher education, and it's laughable. It's so one-sided, it's ridiculous. And they've said, well, as the shift began to occur, then conservative thinkers in particular sort of self-selected out of academia and said, there's no real place for me here. And so they've pursued other venues, business and education and politics and other ways of service, but not higher education. To the point now where it's like, if you have a token conservative in a law school or in a, well, you won't find any in the humanities or political <laughs> science arenas or certainly not sociology, but it's it's amazing how dominated those are. And not just by those that might self-identify as liberals, but even Marxists. I mean, card-carrying Marxist professors in, in secular institutions is not not at all. It's like a prestigious thing. Yeah. So when the left has shifted the Overton window, right, the, the window of what's possible in our culture, it's because we have higher education way far out on one end of the spectrum. And then the rest of our politics just sort of gravitates towards that pole, especially as we have more and more young people coming out of those institutions shaped by those professors. Um, obviously, it's important then that we have places like Maranatha yeah. to offer a a different option for yeah. families and not only a different option for families, for students, but also to have great professors publishing good books, publishing good articles that that provide an alternative set of research, an alternative set of ideas uh, that that pull us back uh, from the brink. But ultimately, as much as you know, some of us are called to be uh, a, a counterpoint. Others of us are called to go into those places, right? Maybe it's for people like your son, Tim, like yeah. you go to a place like Maranatha undergrad, and then you go to law school somewhere like, you know, a top law school where you might be one of a small number of kids who yeah. are people of faith or conservatives. But again, we've got to be salt and light in all these places. Yeah. And that's not new. We look back to the old Testament. There were Daniels and there were Joseph's. But there were Jeremiah's and Isaiah's and you <laughs> yes. know, guys that were very much prophets whistling in a hurricane against the culture that was uh, an onslaught at that point. And it's never been popular to do what's right because it goes against our flesh. It goes against what our human nature wants and craves. And when people stand up and say that's wrong, the offense of that it, the, it oftentimes met violently. And we're seeing that as well in our culture. This is why uh, when we were talking earlier today about the Constitution, right, the part of the point of the Bill of Rights is to protect us from these majoritarian impulses that our society uh, is so often driven by the wrong thing or, or people get questions wrong or the people in power don't reflect where most of the American people are at. I fundamentally believe most of the American people, most of the time on most of the issues agree with us. Uh, they just don't get that result out of their politicians. Um, but that, that may be what you just said. That may be a luxury that is a fleeting luxury right. that we will not see continue the same way in the next generation. Which is why it's all the more important then that on these questions of free speech, on religious liberty, that we're winning these 
generational precedence now yep. when it is good. And, and therefore we have those bulwarks in place to protect us when times get harder. My concern with the culture war, especially as it goes to uh, personal freedoms, is that we may still have uh, some religious organizations that hold the line on these issues, but the members of those organizations are not. And so you can say, well, the Catholic Church is still, you know, very strong statements on this and that. Great. But that's just the Catholic Church and whoever controls the levers of power within their institutions. The rank and file Catholic Church members or self-identifying Catholics are not informed by those decisions and not living according to them. And so we're not talking about mass majorities of people at that point. We're talking about being in very much in the minority, even within the overall religious community of those that say, this is what God's word says, and I'm going to take it at face value. You mentioned in your assembly talk something that Dr. Marriott, the president here at Maranatha, and I have talked about dozens of times. And I, I couldn't even look at him when you said it because I knew he'd be looking at me like giving a thumbs up and smiling. Uh, and I would probably just have laughed out loud and, and no one would have known why. Uh, but you said that there are actually extraordinary parallels between correct interpretation of the law and correct interpretation of Scripture, that That's right. theological... Uh, originalism is uh, a correct way to interpret the scriptures as, as is uh, the same originalist legal philosophy. Yeah, at the end of the day, I think the question is, are these documents uh, documents that embody timeless truths that we should try to conform current culture to? Or should we try to conform the documents to the demands of current culture? Right. And obviously the answer in both cases is, the Constitution embodies the best human wisdom about government that we have seen in the history of man. And obviously the, the Bible embodies divine wisdom. Yeah. Well, what we have to, we have to clarify the Constitution was not God inspired in the same sense as the scriptures, which makes it all the more important that we understand what God's mind is on the pages of God's word, rather than try and insert our own gut feelings and what's in our heart, as Obama said, uh, rather than what did God say? That's, That's what right. really guides and determines our, our decisions. Yeah, it's the humility of even going back to Genesis 1, right? Like when the, the promise is you will be like God because you will have the knowledge of good and evil, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's what draws Eve to take that first bite of the apple. And it's so easy as human beings to feel like we can have that knowledge, to have that... Um, belief in in our own hearts about what's right or wrong and our our reason is just as flawed and broken as every other part of our flawed and broken humanity and so it's only when we have um, the bible as a standard or when we can use um uh, natural law as a guide to right. be able to discern what is actually truly eternally right uh, and that's one of the gifts that god gives us through the bible it's been an interesting shift between those that were kind of stretching the words linguistically, right, and creating this sort of relativistic model of interpretation of the Constitution, they're kind of stretching the Constitution to the point now where it's like ignoring the words of the Constitution, especially with things like maybe the Second Amendment yeah, and other right. things that are like couldn't be clearer, like the state of New York, which has to be told quite regularly by the Supreme Court that they are totally wrong, uh, that 
they would read that we have the right to bear, bear, keep and bear arms and say, well, what that means is through their laws, you have neither the right to keep nor to bear any, any, any arms at all. So my, my favorite example <laughs> so. is um, several Supreme Court justices who have said the death penalty violates the cruel and unusual punishments clause. And what's so funny about that is there are multiple references to the death penalty in the Constitution. In the Constitution. Right. So the Constitution says you can execute someone for treason as long as you have a sufficient number of witnesses. Right. The Constitution right. says um, you can't deprive anyone of life, liberty, or property without due process of without law. Without due right. process of law, <laughs> which implies, implies. Yeah. Yes. So and, and know, they love that. Government loves that when it comes to taking your property. Yeah. yeah. So the, you know, these are just examples of where we get so far from the text and so into our own sense of what's right and wrong. Well, that's that evolving standards of cultural yes. maturity. Is that yes. the right way they like to say it? Well, last thing. Uh, You've studied all the judges, and I know non-lawyers love it when lawyers talk about their favorite Supreme Court justices. <laughs> they refer to them by first names sometimes. But uh, Scalia wrote a book uh, before he passed on interpreting the law, and I have that in my library, and it's you know well-worn pages at this point, even though it's not that old of a book. But some of the same things, the, the canons, the, the discipline of approaching the interpretation of the law, and we as believers need to exercise that same kind of discipline in searching the scriptures. You, you said uh, deep thinking is hard work, mm-hmm. and I wonder if you just could expand on that in closing. Yeah, so um, my dad's a pastor, and one of the oh. things he always says when um, you know people bring up a, a part of scripture that's hard is always the best interpretation of scripture is other scripture. Right, like you can't just find one verse and then treat it like it's an island. You have to look at the the whole of uh, the Word of God, and oftentimes the hard parts of the Bible, when seen in a context of all the parts of the Bible, make a lot more sense. I think the same is actually true of the law. um, That we can't treat different parts of the law as an island with its own body of doctrine, and so we've got one test for this clause, and we've got one test for that clause, like. The Constitution hangs together because ultimately it reflects a commitment to freedom. Hmm. And if we lose that perspective, if we think about just one part of the law over here or one part of the law over there, and and we lose um, the overall purpose behind it, not to say that we should interpret the law based on purpose or, or these things, but but if we don't remember why the system is written like it is, why the Constitution exists as it is, that the purpose of the state is to preserve freedom— uh, that becomes, I think, a much better guiding principle for how we should go about our job as lawyers and ultimately our job as citizens. We so appreciate your investment in the students this morning and even talking at the table. We need people like you. We need at Maranathi, we need people like you to not only defend us at times, but to inspire us as well. So thank you for your investment. Well, it's a joy to do it. And honestly, uh, it's really easy to invest in young people when they're great young people, right? Like when you know you're going to see so much um, uh, payback. You're going to see dividends from the investments you make because they're obviously uh, just so talented and smart. It just, it gives you hope for the future, right? And so I love being able to come here to Maranatha, hang out with your students. It gives me hope for the future. They're the best. Thank you for joining us today. On Mission is a production of Maranatha Baptist University. Subscribe to On Mission on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review as this will help other growing leaders find these conversations. 
For information about our guests, previous episodes, and general information about On Mission or MBU, go to mbu.edu slash podcast. Join us again next week as we examine what keeps leaders on mission.